0: All right, and you can take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're studying through the Gospel of Luke in chapter number 11. And uh, we're changing up uh, some of the children's church schedule over the month of February here. And so the last song before the message, uh, the children will be uh, dismissed. So they're coming back in from Sunday school uh, into the service, first portion of the service, uh, K 4 up through um, uh, third grade, and then they're being dismissed during the preaching time. And they give us some opportunity for some more teams in our children's church to be able to participate, and um, also cuts that, that time down as well, and then gives them an opportunity to be in the singing portion and uh, first portion of the service. And uh, enjoy that as well. So Luke chapter 11, down in verse 29. And when the people were gathered thick together, he, that's Jesus, began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given but the sign of Jonas, or Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. And the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the uttermost part of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment which with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, put it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they, might, they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body is also full of light. But When thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore." that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Father, I pray that you would add the blessing to the reading of your word. The time that we have to focus our attention upon the word of God, the Holy Spirit speak to us. Convict us. In some area this, evening, this morning where we struggle, if there is someone here that's listening either online or in the service this morning who does not know Jesus Christ, would they see the sign that is given and what you have done for them and what they can do to accept that gospel and have the light in their life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is election year and all the politicians and the media and Everything is all focused on um, caucuses and um, election and um, uh, primaries that are coming around and all the way until November. In fact, they've been talking about it for a couple of years now. And we have both major candidates who are in legal battles, uh, either some issue of a family member or money issues or what they said on a particular day or didn't say. And um, just people are skeptical on, on both sides. What would, what would you think if a major candidate got up and, on national news in front of the large crowd and uh, got up on the stage of the masses of people and called everyone that was going to vote for them an evil and wicked generation? All of you are sinners in under judgment. And I'm not going to meet your demands as your candidate. I'm going to run my own campaign my way. I'm not going to meet your expectations. So take it or leave it. Choose sides. How do you think that would go? We've probably got a candidate saying something similar to that. In some ways, it would go terribly. I'm sure he would lose just about all of his supporters... Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. He just told his, the crowd, choose sides. You're, all, you're on one or the other. There's no middle ground. Then he calls them an evil and wicked generation. You see, Jesus is not looking for popularity. Jesus is not looking to be reelected. Jesus is not looking to give the crowd what they want to hear. In fact, Jesus is going to tell them the truth. And he's going to tell them, take it or leave it. Choose sides. I'm not going to meet your demands. I'm not going to meet your expectations because your expectations and your demands are wrong. I'm going to do what's right. And I'm going to fulfill the commands of God's word. And I am who I am. This evil and wicked generation, Jesus is pointing out their weakness He's not talking to just the religious leaders. At some point, he will come back at the end of this chapter and he will address the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and the religious leaders. And he's got some words for them too. But in this part, he's talking about the masses. Look down in verse 29. The Bible says, And when the people were gathered thick, that means the masses came out. His crowds were growing bigger and bigger. This is the climax. They had come to their peak. They came out because Jesus cared for them. They came out because they knew Jesus loved them. They came out because they knew that he was going to he was going to speak the words of God, and what he spoke was powerful. They recognized he doesn't speak as the scribes and Pharisees. He speaks with a different power. They came out because Jesus preached with power because Jesus confronted the religious establishment. But they also came out because they wanted a miracle. They were sick. They had children that were demon possessed. They had uh, they they had leprosy. They were blind. They were lame. They were they were deaf, and and they needed a miracle to take place for them physically. And Jesus performed miracles. They also wanted freedom from Rome. They didn't like the oppression of Rome. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people were living under the thumb of a Gentile nation. Whether it was the the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, or the Romans. They wanted liberty. They wanted freedom. They wanted to be able to live in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in their home country, without the oppression of having to pay taxes and tribute to a Caesar and a foreign leader far away. They wanted their own king. And to some extent, they were justified in that. There there were some prophecies that would indicate that that would happen. They wanted a liberator, but only a liberator who would give them physical blessings. They only wanted freedom from the physical side. The crowds thought that they were, even though they were big, they were fickle, they were weak, they were shallow. Not really serious about what Jesus was serious about. Jesus was serious about sin. Jesus was serious about spiritual sickness. Jesus was serious about a life that is changed. Jesus was serious about disciples who would take up their cross and follow him. Even if it meant suffering. Jesus was talking about repentance. Jesus was talking about sacrifice. That wasn't popular. I wonder if it's any different than our generation today. We are living in an evil and wicked generation. And Jesus uses strong language. Remember, he's addressing a crowd that has started a rumor that he was acting in league with the devil. He was Beelzebub or acting under the power of Beelzebub. Even his own family had come and said, he's mad. He's crazy. Bring him back home. Stop talking about all of these weird object lessons and, and these weird parables that you're giving. You're just revealing that you're mad. Family members, brothers and sisters... He even put the religious leaders in a tight spot when he made them furious. He addressed a group of people and told them to choose sides. Jesus or the devil. You can't have it both ways. You see, he gave a parable that the devil is the strong man who has possessions in his own palace. And yet a stronger man who is Jesus comes in, defeats the devil, takes away his armor and then liberates those who are under his power. Jesus says he has come into this world to liberate people and to set them free from the grips of the devil and the lies of the devil. There's no neutral ground. You cannot remain open. And on the fence. The second parable that Jesus gave about a man who was possessed by a demon and the demon left and wandered around in the desert and, in, uh, and and looking for a place and he couldn't so he came back to the original man and the man had swept clean his heart and his life and it was open and vacant and so the devil went out and got seven more even worse than himself and came in and indwelt the man and the latter portion of the man being indwelt by now eight. Was worse than the first state. Jesus is saying you can't remain on neutral ground. You can't remain with your heart and your mind open in any direction. You must accept Jesus. Accept him and his kingdom and his message as being the Messiah. Take part in the kingdom of God or you'll remain in the kingdom of darkness. Under the power of the devil. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and there's thousands upon thousands of people that he's saying, you must make a decision. I'm not going to meet your demands. I'm not going to meet your specific expectations. I've come to do the will of the father. And that's going to be a hard road and you're going to have to trust the Messiah who's going to suffer, bleed and die for you. Now, Jesus addresses another group of people. Which, in fact, is, is a smaller portion. Look in chapter 11, verse 16. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. So after Jesus dealt with the crowd that claimed he was from Beelzebub. Gives us some parables in that portion. Then Jesus returns to the other group within the, the, uh, the masses. Who are now looking for more signs. Jesus returns to this group. Jesus, you're not enough. The song the choir sang earlier, Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. Do you really believe that? This crowd was saying, your word is not enough for us. We want more proof. We want another sign. We want it even bigger than the last one you did. In other words, they they saw Jesus as just a sideshow to a larger circus. They don't deny that he was performing miracles. I mean, he fed 5,000, over 5,000, with, with just two, barley, uh, two fishes and five barley loaves. He was raising people from the dead. The word had gotten around. All of Capernaum's sicknesses at that time were pretty much eradicated as people got in line into the streets because Jesus was healing from sun up to sundown. People were not denying that Jesus had power to do the impossible. That's why the religious leaders had to come and explain it away by some demon power. They wanted more. Now they wanted signs from heaven. Jesus was performing miracles in the sense of healing people from their sickness, raising them from the dead, but that wasn't enough. They wanted fire down from heaven. They wanted manna to come down and drop on their lap. They wanted some kind of sun to stand still. They wanted to see what the disciples saw in the Sea of Galilee when he called peace be still. And the storm ceased. They wanted to see something miraculous in nature. A sign from heaven. Jesus turns to two Old Testament stories and gives them an illustration. What are the two stories that we read this morning? Well the first one is the story of Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah is a prophet in the Old Testament who's commanded to go and preach to Nineveh. And you remember the story? Jonah decides, I don't want to preach to Nineveh. I'm going to go to Tarshish. So he goes down to Joppa, buys a fare, gets on a boat, and he heads the opposite direction out west. We know a lot about this story. It's one of the first stories we heard about when we were in children's church or in Sunday school. Or maybe your grandparents or your parents told you uh, about in your, in your Bible storybook. The storm Sleeping in the bottom of the boat, the sailors on the ship, the lots being cast. Jonah finally telling the truth that he's the man and then telling him to throw him overboard. The fish then being prepared and then Jonah being swallowed by the fish. Jonah praying three days and three nights. Or he's three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Until he finally gets on his knees inside the belly of this great fish. And he prays to God. And and the fish spits Jonah out on dry land. Imagine what a sight that was. Then he makes a beeline to Nineveh. He preaches, I believe it is, six or seven Hebrew words. And when he preaches... From the king all the way down to the peasant, the entire city of Nineveh finds a revival and turns and repents and turns to God. And then we got this last portion of the story of Jonah who goes up onto the, on the hillside and the story of the worm and the gourd and all of this and the shade and the sun and God teaching a lesson of Jonah. But in the story of Jonah, this is a story of a great revival that happens And a truth, a story of revival, even from the mouth of a disobedient prophet. The second story that Jesus tells and reminds his readers about is a story that maybe we're not as familiar with, but every Jewish person would have been told this story too because their founding father, one of their kings, was King David and his son was Solomon. And they knew all about David and they knew all about Solomon. He had written majority of their uh, prophetic books like uh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. They looked up to Solomon. They looked up to David and they knew a lot about their own history. This is a unique story recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Only 12 verses in each of those books. That this story of the Queen of Sheba called here by Jesus the Queen of the South. She was the Queen of an area in Arabia which would be modern day Yemen. Notice that comes up even today all the way back in the Old Testament. She hears the fame of Solomon, this king all the way in Jerusalem, all the way up onto the Mediterranean. And she decides that she's going to travel. And so she spends her time and effort and money to get this long travel from south in the Arabian Peninsula all the way up to Jerusalem to just hear the words of this great wise king. She travels a far distance at a great cost. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 6 through 9 said that it was reported to her. And when she finally comes and observes what Solomon is doing and what uh, what he's saying and how his kingdom is, she says, surely it is true what they've been saying about you. And she accepts the message and goes back to her homeland. Possibly even becoming a God-fearer of Jehovah in the Old Testament. What do these two stories share in common? Just note some parallels. Jesus picks these two stories that were well known to the Jewish people. And then he's going to use them as signs to the current generation that is evil and has hard hearts. Both of these stories involve a great distance of travel. Okay. Jonah goes the opposite direction, 500 miles from Galilee to, uh, to Nineveh. That's a long distance, but you add the distance that he has to out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He goes from the belly of the fish underneath the, underneath the water to the dry land all the way up to Nineveh in Syria. That's a pretty long distance. Just about the same distance that it took the Queen of Sheba to travel from the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula up to Jerusalem. Both stories involve a great distance of travel. Both of them involve Gentiles hearing of Jehovah. Sheba, the queen of Sheba, was a Gentile queen. Much like Cleopatra or, uh, or, or some other Gentile queen. She was part of, of a very different, she was not Jewish. The nation of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria, and who Jonah goes to. They were Gentiles, they were not Jews. And so both of these Gentile people hear a report about Jehovah. One from the mouth of the prophet Jonah, the other from the mouth of Solomon. And they both seem to both seem to accept the, the, the message of Jehovah. There seems to be a connection of missions in the story. Both of them involve hearing the word of Jehovah. One from the mouth of a prophet, the other from the mouth of a king. Both of them preachers... Preaching God's word. Both of them involve the love of God. The whole story of Jonah is that God loves the whole world. Not just Jews. But he also loves the Ninevites. And he's willing to take a prophet from the bottom of the ocean. And go out of his way to send them word that God loves them if they will repent. And God will spare even cattle. That's the very last verse in the book of Jonah. That God even loves their animals in Assyria. And so you have the story of God's love. As well as God's love to this queen of Sheba. That she would hear the gospel or hear the message of Jehovah. Travel such a great distance that God even loved this queen. Both of them talk about God's judgment. And salvation. And both of them involve people praising God in the end for his greatness. The Queen of Sheba gives testimony of how great God is because what she has seen from from Solomon. And the people of Nineveh, even the king, uh, praises God for his uh, his great blessings and goodness by sparing their people. So what does Jesus do with these two stories? We saw the comparisons, we saw them together, but what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus gives both of these stories a sign. He tells them one is a sign of his salvation, the other is a sign of his judgment. Then Jesus closes with an illustration between light and darkness. So let's look at these three points one, a sign of salvation. Two, a sign of judgment and then a concluding illustration of light and darkness. The first, the sign of salvation. Look down in verse 30 or 29. And when the crowd was gathered thick together, this is an evil generation, Jesus says, because they seek a sign. But no sign is going to be given them except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. The word sign occurs three times in verse 29. It's the word to mean a token or a mark. It is a word to mean it points to something more. When you come down uh, the Douglas Road or Indian Creek, you'll see that we have a sign. We have two signs outside. We have a sign on the corner that you can see from... uh, uh, from the red light that says Calvary Baptist Church. And it's ingrained in, uh, in the stone there. Then we have a digital sign that's up at the top of the hill. That uh, that scrolls through a few different uh, times for our services. Uh, we can do it where it would tell the, the, um, the weather. And where it would tell the time. Uh, we also have the capability of showing some pictures. And some, and some video and some of those things like that. On that sign too. We use that as a as a. As a marker to show people and to point people what's going on here inside this church. And what we are doing here on this corner of Indian Creek and Douglas Road. We're pointing people to something. That's what a sign does. It points. It became used as a word for a wonder or a miracle. Because in the Old Testament when miracles happened. When signs took place by a prophet or man of God. Or a person they were doing that to authenticate some kind of word that they were giving or that they were saying. Remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel. And he was giving the people a choice between serving God or serving Baal. He gave them a test. Now whoever is the true God who is going to display and that's the person you serve. We already know that God Jehovah is the true God. But to prove that to you I'm going to give you a sign. And then he, he creates a scenario by which the gods are going to have to act. And the false gods, who can't act anyway because they don't exist, don't have anything. No matter how much they dance, no matter how much they cut themselves, no matter how much they screamed and cried and yelled, nothing happened. But to prove that God exists, God gave them a sign. But God doesn't do that all the time. He doesn't give signs all the time to every generation, to every person. He's not a genie in a bottle or, you, or, or some person that you come in and put some money in the offering plate. And then he does some trick for you. However, that was what they were thinking that Jesus would do. Is do some tricks, do some signs and constantly pour it. And Jesus was already doing signs. He was already doing and performing miracles all over Galilee. It wasn't enough. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any more signs except the sign of Jonah. What is Jonah? Jonah was a preacher of righteousness. We already talked about that. He became a bearer of a message of hope to those who would repent. In other words, there was forgiveness to Nineveh. If they accepted the message, repented and turned to Yahweh. Jesus also is a preacher of righteousness. He has come telling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is before them. Accept his message. Accept his terms. And I'll give you forgiveness and I'll set people free. That was the sign that Jesus was connecting. But it was even more than that. Jesus mentions that the fact that the sign of Jonah himself was a sign to the people of Nineveh. Looking down in verse 30. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The sign Jesus mentioned here is that Jonah had come back from the dead. He had come from the depths of the sea, from the mouth of the fish, in the darkness of the ocean. He was a living witness to the power of God. Jonah was his own, had his own type of death, burial, burial. And resurrection. And when he walked into Nineveh, he was a walking testimony that God can forgive anyone. And if he can forgive this disobedient prophet and take him from the place of death, which was the pit of hell, and if you read uh, Jonah chapter 2, when Jonah prays in the belly of the fish, he actually says, I have come into the pit of Sheol, to the place of death. I shouldn't be alive. But I am because of the grace of God. And Jesus takes that as a sign of himself. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. There's only two places in the New Testament where Jonah is said to be a sign. This is one in Luke chapter 11. The second is in the parallel passage of Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus gives a little bit more detail than what Luke does. In Matthew chapter 12 in verse 40. Listen to what Jesus says. In verse 39, he says, an evil and adulterous generations who are constantly seeking after sign, but there will be no sign given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of the ...of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So right here, uh, 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 Matthew mentions the connection. Luke doesn't say anything about three days and three nights. Luke doesn't mention the belly of the whale. Luke doesn't mention the tomb from the heart of the earth. Luke only focuses on the fact that Jonah was a prophet... That Jonah was a sign as being a prophet, a preacher, and that Jesus is the greater Jonah. Luke focuses on the preaching of Jonah, the word of Jonah. And then in Luke 11 verse 30, he focuses on the fact that Jonah was a sign to Nineveh. He was a walking, living proof of God's mercy and forgiveness. Literally, Jonah had come back from the place of death, preaching a message of repentance. And if Nineveh will repent, in the presence of a man who had repented and seen the power of God. In other words, Jonah was pointing them to a God who forgives. And in Jonah's own type of death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is saying, I'm going to have my own death, burial, and resurrection. Notice the words that Jesus uses. In verse 30 of chapter 11. So uh, for as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites. So shall. Notice his future tense. In other words Jesus is saying. In the near future. You're going to see the fulfillment of this sign. Just like Jonah was a testimony. And a sign to the people of Nineveh. I One day, here soon, in the future, I'm going to be to you a sign. A testimony. John chapter 2 actually shows that Jesus, in the early portion of his ministry, was speaking of his death. In John chapter 2, John records for us the first encounter when Jesus comes to the temple in the early portion. Just after he got out of the wilderness and temptation of the devil and been baptized, he makes his way to Jerusalem for the first time. He doesn't have disciples yet. And he comes into Jerusalem, he casts out the money changers and he sets himself up and then he begins preaching in the temple. And in John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus says this in front of the crowd in the presence of the temple and he says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. And they're all like talking about, well, how are we talking about this? Is 40 years it took them to build this temple. And you're going to d- destroy it in three days and then rise it back up. And John adds the commentary in, in the next verse. He says, but he was talking about his own body. In other words, Jesus was not necessarily going around hiding the secret of the fact that he was going to die, suffer, bleed, be buried, and on the third day rise again. He had told that. Yes, maybe in a metaphor and an illustration, but he was telling people that he was the Messiah. He was going to purchase the redemption for man. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3, that he would be bruised and he would be crushed for the sins of the world. You see, the greatest miracle and the greatest sign that Jesus ever performed Was the fact that he died on the cross. Was buried in the grave. And on Easter Sunday he rose again. And he said that he would do it. He told the disciples he would do it. He told the crowds in Jerusalem he would do it. He told the multitudes that he would do it. He told them that he would suffer, bleed and die. And on the third day rise again. He would redeem them. And this proved... That he was the son of God and he was their savior. This is the gospel. You see, this is what Jesus can set people free from. Their sin. Why? Because he's son of God. How do we know he was the son of God? Because when he died, he was put into the grave. No one rose him from the grave. He arose himself in his own power to prove that he could save anyone from their sin. And Paul says he was the first fruits of the resurrection. And it is by his resurrection in 1 first, first Corinthians chapter 15 that we can believe that we are set free from our sin. And one day that we will rise again from the dead. That is our hope. Because he lives, we shall live also. That is the great message of the gospel. And Jesus says, that is the sign. And think about Nineveh. This wicked and evil city. They were cruel. In fact, Nero in Paul's day would adopt their cruel tactics on the Jews. The armies of the people of Nineveh would impale their captives, skin them alive, and set them as a warning sign outside their city gates. Amber and I have been to the British Museum in London. And in the British Museum there is a room that is filled with the walls that have been taken from the palace in Nineveh. There was a certain room in Nineveh that, um, that was lined with, with this story of a battle. A battle that took place in Israel. In Lachish. And on those panels. There are people who are impaled. And then the Ninevites are flaying them. I mean this is, this is over 2,500 years old. Wall paintings. Of the cruelty of the Ninevites. No wonder Jonah said. Not me. I'm not going there. I'm not going to be on somebody's bag. All right. I, I don't, I'm not going to do that. That was what they were known for. But when the gospel came to this wicked evil city. These rotten sinners. Repented and turned to God. Now Jesus is standing before a crowd of very religious people who have their clothes in the right place and have their Torahs on their forehead and on their arms who go to synagogue every weekend who know all of the Old Testament passages of Scripture and all of the stories from the Queen of Sheba to Jonah. And Jesus saying, A greater than Jonah is here preaching to you a message of liberation and freedom from your sin. And what are you going to do with him? What they do with him? Is they put him on a cross. They reject him. He offers to them forgiveness. And they in turn. Reject him. So Jesus is giving a sign. He's giving them a sign. But it's not a sign that they want to hear. It's not a sign that they want to see. Jesus is saying read your Old Testament. Read about the story of Jonah. And in just a matter of a few years. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And I'm going to rise again. You better listen. That's the gospel. It's the only way you're going to be saved. Only way you're going to be forgiven. I'm going to tell you this morning, the only way you're ever going to be forgiven is when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. What he did for you on your behalf, he doesn't need you to add anything to it. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Do you believe that? Not only is this a sign of salvation, but it is also a sign of judgment. I'll just quickly tell you, in verse 31, the scriptures talks about Jesus uses the illustration of the queen of the south. And that the queen of the south is going to rise up in the judgment day against this generation. Then in verse 32, he says the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in that day as judgment against this generation. In other words, what this lady is going to do is in the last day, she's going to stand up. And she's going to be a witness against those who have rejected Jesus the Messiah. The people of Nineveh one day are going to stand at the judgment and give testimony that they repented and turned to God. But against those who've decided to reject. Jesus is proving here that there is going to be a judgment. Just like the Queen of Sheba, just like Solomon, just like Jonah, were real people and real events, so will the future judgment be, and people will stand before an almighty God and give an account. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Whether you want to admit it or not, one day all of us are going to stand before God the Creator, and we will give an account. At that judgment day, at the great white throne judgment, that future judgment which Jesus believed in, Jesus spoke about, and Jesus warned people about, are you ready when that day comes? Because the queen of the south is going to stand up. The people of Nineveh, as cruel as they are, are going to stand up and give testimony that God's grace is sufficient. But what will you do with Jesus? The comparison that is given here in this story of the queen of the south. Solomon is the wisest king to have ever lived. The one who people came to for thousands of miles to see and hear in person his great wisdom. Solomon had riches and wealth. One person stated probably 200 million dollars every year that Solomon made. Yet this was a drop in the bucket to what Jesus was doing and offering people. The queen of the south traveled miles and miles to hear and see what Solomon was doing. She was a Gentile. She didn't have the Bible. She wasn't one of God's chosen people. She didn't have the temple. She didn't have the record of the Ten Commandments. She didn't have the promises that all the Israelites had. But she came and listened and obeyed the truth that she heard. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 1 actually says that she came testing Solomon. Asking him hard questions. What were the Jewish people doing with Jesus testing him and asking him hard questions? How did Solomon answer every time he answered? People were amazed at the wisdom that he had. Someone referenced the fact that possibly God gave Solomon a, um, a, a photographic memory. He gave him a wisdom beyond the years where he was able to remember back situations and circumstances and then make judgments and make decisions that would just put people right in the place where they would know the exact thing to do. We have several examples in the Old Testament of Solomon's great wisdom and how he was able to read people and make a decision. We all could agree as we read through the gospel that Jesus had great wisdom. He was able to take the Pharisees who thought they were smart And turn them and twist them to upside down where they had no answer to give. And they walked away. Like a dog would walk away with his tail tucked up uh, under himself. Just not knowing, all twisted up. Jesus could take someone like Peter and he could address exactly what he needed. He could answer people's problems and questions. The Bible says here, there is a greater than Solomon in your midst. Jonah, a prophet who preached to Nineveh and this pagan city that was filled with idolatry, had no Bible in their own language. They didn't have a temple for Jehovah. No personal promises like Israel had. And yet they heard from a disobedient prophet. And when they heard him, they repented, listened, and obeyed. This is a group of people who will one day stand as a presence and a testimony for all people that God is love greater than Jonah. Greater than Solomon. Greater than Abraham and David. The Messiah son of God stands in their presence. And they won't listen. You see when your heart is not in the right place. Then it doesn't matter how many signs and wonders you see. You see we often stumble at the simplest things. We want the big. We want the grand. We we want God to do more. You see, God's word is enough. Do you remember the story of Naaman? Do you remember when he came to Elisha? And he's got leprosy and he's been told by this little girl that if you go to Elisha the prophet, he can heal you. And he comes and he's got this great caravan, man with all the power. And he comes up and Elisha doesn't even get off his couch. He sends his servant out the door. And he says, oh yeah, Elisha the prophet. He says, go down there and wash in the river Jordan. And Naaman is furious. He's angry. This rich man who had come from afar, who brought gifts of gold and silver, this man with wealth and power, and yet when Elisha would not even come out of his house, do you know who I am? He said, and I'm paraphrasing, why won't you even come out? You you can wave your hand. You can strike it against this place. You can call fire down from heaven. You can do for a person a miracle right here in my presence. I expect more from such a powerful man than a rich man. You want me to go down and wash in that dirty, stinking Jordan River. I'm not doing it. That's too easy. That's too simple. It's got to be more than this. You remember on his way, turning around, he's got a servant that says, hey, if he'd have told you to do some grand thing, you would have done it, right? You see, Jesus is presenting you with the truth today that you don't need a personal miracle. You don't need some special feeling. Or some dramatic event or some Holy Ghost unction. You need the simple childlike faith in a simple yet profound truth that Jesus died for your sins and if you will believe that is enough. Believer, can I tell you this morning in a spirit of application, tempting God is a very dangerous thing. His word is enough. Stop looking for more proof. It is a sign of weak faith. Faith, when someone like Gideon says, God, I'm not going to do what you say until you prove to me some kind of fleece. I'm not going to be. That's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of tempting. It's a, it's a spirit of, of, um, of weak faith. Then Jesus, in this last parable, gives an illustration of the heart. If you look down in the verse From verse 33 down to verse 36, Jesus starts talking about light and candles and lamps. In other words, Jesus demands a response. Remember, you cannot remain neutral. Every time we come under the preaching of God's word, it demands for us to do one of two things. It will either bring us closer to God or it will bring us farther from God. Jesus now moves into an illustration of something that he has been addressing this whole chapter... Two kingdoms, two masters, two strong men, two ways, one choice, light, darkness. What are you going to make? Lie or truth? Satan or the Messiah? God's word is the light that shines in darkness. The Jewish people would have completely understood the illustration. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Every Jewish person would have known the illustration that Jesus was using. Jesus is saying, I am the lamp. I am the light of the world. I am the very word of God. And when something brings light, a lamp, it is not hidden under a bushel, but it is open. And Jesus is saying, I'm standing right here telling you the truth. Will you believe me? The word of God is right in front of you. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Listen to what I'm telling you. Jesus is saying you don't need any more signs. Sign seekers are already blind. How are your eyes today? Can you see well? I was visiting someone this week who is having injections into their eyes because their eyesight is getting worse and worse. They need help seeing Jesus goes from the physical illustration to the spiritual illustration. And by using the eye that is single, if your eye is single, that means focused, then your whole body is going to be filled with light. But if your eye is evil, notice it's the same word about the evil generation. It means to be broken or corrupt. Then your whole body is going to be filled with darkness. Darkness. In other words, everything is affected by the eye. Your whole body is going to be either light or darkness depending on your eye. Jesus is using the eye as in a synonym fashion to the heart. Everything, just like light that goes into your body, is going to come through the one organ, the eye. So in your heart... Everything that comes in and out of your life is going to be dictated of whether you're dark or light, depending on your heart. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says when he was a young man sitting on the Hudson River. He wrote this. I had then at other times the greatest delight in the holy scriptures of any book. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt it harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence. Such refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in any of my reading. Often dwelling long on just one sentence to see wonders contained in those very words. And yet almost every sentence seemed to be filled with wonders and amazement. You see, when your heart is in tune with God, his words are sweet. But when your heart is broken and bent and doubled, not singled, but doubled, then you're going to be confused in darkness and not know where you're going. If my heart is in line with Jesus, then I have purpose. I have reason. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. But if your heart is dark and not in line with Jesus, then you have no purpose, no direction, and you're wandering around in the dark confused. And Jesus says in verse 35 be careful, beware, take heed. In other words, he's saying, you may think that you can see, but in fact, you're blind. This is the whole issue of the Pharisees. They thought that they were okay. They were deceiving themselves. Jesus said, you're blind people leading others who are blind. And you're going to destruction because you think you can see. How many of you were raised as children in the 1950s? Raise your hand. All right, you remember when television started to come around, they went from the movies to television, and they started the cartoon, Mr. Magoo. All right, I showed the cartoon to my kids this last week, one of the cartoons of Mr. Magoo. You remember that funny little cartoon? Couldn't, couldn't see a thing. Going around and trying to figure out and had these big old giant glasses or whatever. And the whole cartoon, he thinks that he's, he's fine. Right? And it always ends up turning out his way right? and, and going well for him. And everybody's talking to the light post. that's a police officer, you know, or whatever. Us oftentimes the way we are spiritually. We think we're okay. We think we can get along. I was reading this week that in Britain during World War II, that in the first month of the mandatory blackouts that went along all across England... More than a thousand people died in automobile accidents. Because they couldn't see in the dark. That's what they called blackout blindness. However, the RAF pilots who were flying at night. Doing raids and bombings over uh, Germany. Seemed to be having success. In bombing their targets And hitting the the planes in the night. The RAF revealed their secret. The RAF pilots ate a healthy diet of carrots. This produced a market in England. On eating lots of carrots. The British Ministry of Food published recipes. For the British people to make carrots for every meal. Even carrot fudge. By 1942, 100,000 tons of carrots were being used and packed with vitamin A all across the British Isles. It even made it to the United States. Walt Disney even made a cartoon for children of singing carrots to encourage them to eat their vegetables. The secret even made it to Germany. And the German Luftwaffe began to feed its pilots carrots to help them see at night. The Problem is, it was all fake. It was false advertisement. Carrots had no effect on being able to see in the dark. The RAF and the British government had deflected a situation to take attention off of a new invention that the British Army had in their airplanes. Air-to-air radar. The RAF soldiers were flying their planes with a new equipment that helped them to pinpoint their targets. It had nothing to do with their diet. I wonder if many people are eating carrots Thinking that it will help them to see better. There's a lot of things that the world can offer you to either have salvation through religion, some good works. Or as a believer to get your life order and right so that you can have direction and purpose in your life. But too many believers and non-believers are trusting in the wrong thing. You see, it's the radar of a changed heart that comes from the word of God that makes the difference in your life. Don't be deceived to think that you're okay. Know the blind spots and the places in your eye that is giving you a distraction in your life so that you can see properly. Remember the church at Laodicea? When Jesus wrote to them and said that you think that you are rich, you think that you have um, a, a clothes and you think that you're OK, He said, "You are deceived because you are poor, blind and naked. You think you're healthy, but in fact you're not. Don't be deceived. Stop testing and tempting and asking God to give you more proof. Take the word of God that He's given you and obey. His words. Father I pray as we close this morning.